my my job is to make people feel loved when they come into the restaurant and I would like to keep doing that because yeah I've got a garden there I might as well keep using it I've got a little shop here you know so I could reinvent it as something but that'd take a lot of effort wouldn't it this is the deep in the weeds podcast I'm Anthony Huckstep Well, it's a very special day for a few reasons. Today's guest was our third ever guest on Deep in the Weeds three years ago. And as we celebrate three years of the Deep in the Weeds podcast network, national treasure Annie Smithers is celebrating 10 years of Defermia. Annie, as always, I'm thrilled to catch up with you. How are you? Hi, happy birthday. <laughs> well, happy birthday to you. Like, we're excited about three years, but a decade for a restaurant is pretty extraordinary. It's been a, it's been a wacky decade. But, I, I, you know, it's really funny. I can remember lying in bed yeah, just over three years ago listening to you, or just under three years ago listening to you, and I think the first one I listened to was Jackie Chalanor. And I was lying there and I was thinking, who's this bloke? What's he got to say? I need to talk to him. I want to talk to him. And I sent you a, a funny little message over Instagram. And I remember you called me back and it was a, I think it was a Sunday morning or something outrageous and I was out in a vegetable garden. I was walking the dog in Hague Park in Canberra. And, you know, the world had changed and I wasn't at work on a Sunday and you were walking your dog and it just seems, you know, in a, in a sense it seems like forever ago, doesn't it, those first few months of, uh, whoa, when our world changed. It, it certainly does. The last three years seems like this strange time warp where it's hard to sort of remember when specific things happened during this period, but your restaurant you know, is 10 years uh, coming in this May. Um, what's, what, how long does that feel to you, given that sort of time blip with COVID? <laughs> <laughs> Look, it's, it's a funny anniversary and, you know, it's not something – I'm not really big on the sort of celebratory things, but the date actually coincides with um, me starting my first sort of proper restaurant, I suppose I'd call it, um, back in 2005 at Annie Smithers Bistro in Kyneton. So it's 18 years of sort of, you know, just being a small town self-funded restaurateur. And so I felt that sort of 10 years at Defermier that included three years of COVID or, you know, the last three years being, you know, COVID in the past COVID time deserved a little celebration because it is um, – you know, post the, post the dramatic side of COVID, you know, restaurants have moved from COVID straight into cost of living crises. And, you know, cost of living for a small restaurant like mine is very much like running a big family. So it's another, it's another thing to grapple with. So the 10 years feels, look, sometimes it feels like, gee, that went fast. And then other times it just feels like it's been an eternity. And now that we're sort of 21st century people, I think the concept of you're retiring when you're 60 or 65 has gone out the window. And we all sort of have this sort of nasty realisation that we're going to work until we're 
I don't know, work forever. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly feels that way. The 18 years is pretty extraordinary, as, as you detailed just then. Take us back to sort of the Annie Smithers then to the Annie Smithers now. How, what, how different are you to back then? Well, I was under 40. <laughs> That's, that, seems like, that seems like an eternity ago that there was a three in front of my age. Um, my lovely wife would say that I still behave like an eight-year-old, so, you know, that's, that's a contentious thing. But, um, look, I think the Annie Smithers 18 years ago was brash and raw and immature and, you know, it had a dream and that dream was fashioned and focused around, you know, some of the, some of mainly women, the, the extraordinary women that I'd worked with over the early days, and they include, you know, uh, Stephanie Alexander and Ulla Wolf-Tasker and their capacity to throw everything at a dream. And that was sort of also, you know, another person, another woman that was very big in my life was a woman called Carol White. And she ran a property, she runs a property called Lavangela on the outskirts of the Dalesford Hepburn region. And I've spent five years working at Carol's Place, once you know, a couple of years running my own little uh, cafe and then being an employee. And though that time on the farm you know, has certainly obviously had a huge impact on how I like to run things, but all three women had such extraordinary capacity to dream and realise those dreams. And even though I was pretty green and pretty immature and, you know, completely unfunded and I just went for it. I found an, op an opportunity came my way and I, you know, I went in there feet first and off I went. And, you know, it's been an extraordinary ride and, you know, 18 years later there's that, um, you know, the – yeah, the fully formed little restaurant that Defermier has become, which it was never meant to become. It was always set up just to be a cafe. Um, so restaurants have this, yeah, they have a beautiful capacity to become almost what they want to become and what the patrons want them to become because they're they're little they're living breathing entities. It's like it's like working with yeast. You know, you can you can kill it pretty easily, but if you let it if you let it grow and you look after it, it sort of forms into its own crazy little individual personality. Do you have any favourite stories of getting Defermier up and running once you'd found the location? Um. I actually had found a location a couple of years before I arrived here and it belonged to a dear friend of mine who um, it, was, it was known as Cool Country Tavern and it was colloquially known as Gav's Tav and it was pretty feral. It had been a restaurant, it had been turned into a restaurant by a lovely lesbian couple in the 80s. Um, it had had a yeah, a lovely history where in the 90s it was a Thai restaurant and they fitted it out with uh, pink velvet booth seating and pink carpet. And, yeah, over its, over its time, 
um, it had ended up as Gav's Tav, and there's still a wiring in the ceiling from some sort of illegal feed to the racing channel. So I suspect that all sorts of nasty things happened here. But it was the most, um, it was just, it was feral. It was, it had to be stripped of everything because everything was stained with cigarettes and alcohol. There was a deep fryer that was on some wonky table in the corner of the kitchen that had so much solid deep frying fat. It was sort of glued to the table. It was just, it was a classic sort of just gut it and start again. So it was pretty, um, it was pretty feral when I took it over. Um, and we stripped it back. And as I said, you know, I've, I've always been sort of reasonably underfunded. So it's not, it, it, there's a sense in that that I'm so grateful for because when you have nothing, you have nothing to lose. So when you take money from somebody else as a backer or whatever, is you're always aware of the fact that you're spending somebody else's money and you have to do good by it. Um, unless you're completely scurrilous, I suppose. But it is that thing of sort of you take chances and risks because you've got nothing. You've got nothing to lose, so you might as well have a go. And so we did that and we opened it up as breakfast, lunch and dinner and cake and coffee and all sorts of things. I'd, I'd left the other, you know, I'd paid off all my staff, I'd paid off all my suppliers, but I still had a nasty tax bill. Um, when I left the bistro and that even that sort of you know, that you know has made me much more prudent and circumspect in the operation of the second restaurant so having not failed but um, struggled to grasp the entirety of running a restaurant the first time round um, gave me great schooling in how not to get into that hole again how does it make you feel when you get that opportunity to kind of build your dream restaurant? You know, granted that there's limited funds, but you were really um, had the ability to create what you wanted to create there. I'm incredibly grateful to all the opportunities that have come my way. So the the sense that sort of the first restaurant, you know, I happened across the um, the owner of the building at a farmer's market when I was selling jam and she and her husband gave me a go. Um, and in the same way um, when, you know, Cynthia approached me about tenanting this building is we, you know, we negotiated on it and that was fine. And, you know, she did everything that she could to get me in there because she thought I might be quite good for our little country town here. And... You know, she may, even to the point that sort of three years later we struck a deal and they sold me the building at a very, you know, a, an incredibly fair um, price. So it sort of has set me up for the rest of my life. So it is a, it, it's an incredible sense of the, you know, that gratitude of people's kindness and the ability to to work hard and you know see a dream and work towards it is you know even in this tangled tricky world that we live in you know it's always beautiful to still be able to dream and see you know what you can turn something into so it makes me feel very warm and and sort of you know all nice inside. 
<laughs> you mentioned that originally the plan was for it to be a cafe. Tell us about that transition that you made into sort of restaurant and farm. The the idea of it being a cafe was that I think after eight years at the bistro, I was pretty I was pretty burnt out. I was sort of struggling with the whole, you know, construct of you know, where restaurants were going, what we were doing, and it just seemed easier to just run a run a cafe. Um, and I've always thought of cafes and restaurants as you know, I have this funny analogy about you know car racing. And a cafe for me seems to be rally racing. You know, you go, you go, you go, you go, you go, you go. Whereas restaurants, are, you know, restaurants are like Formula One. You spend all that time preparing, and then you put your foot flat down to the accelerator, and you go round as fast as you possibly can and as well as you possibly can for two or three hours, and then it's done. And then you do all the prep again and start again. So I think I was looking for a different pace. Um, but also have a rest from restaurant land. Um, but we found that, you know, people gravitated towards, you know, I'd put on a bit of, you know, I don't know, I'd put on some coffee duck or I'd put on something a bit fancier than a toasted sandwich or an omelette or whatever, and people gravitated towards that. And then I'd put on a little set menu for the day and, you know, more and more people had that and the Nighttime was just on a set menu cooking from the garden. So, you know, eventually it evolved into we got to the point where, you know, one or two people would order off the a la carte menu over a weekend. So it just made sense to change it up and do what the people wanted. So then it then it became sort of a restaurant, the set, the set menu, menu du jour style menu. Um, restaurant that I'd long had a a dream for, but never quite the internal security to say this is what you're eating. It always frightened me to make choices for people. Well, how did you get over that hurdle? I think that well, the numbers were sort of on the board because they just said, yeah, you know, we'll have the set menu. So when it got to the point that you were prepping you know, X number of portions of a little, you know, three by three or four by four by four menu and you were giving it to your staff at the end of the week because nobody ordered it from it. It just was business sense to do it. And that's that's created this beautiful no-waste business model that we have today. Has, uh, was there challenges with that model in a regional setting and sort of reliant on travellers from the city? What, do you, what, no, what were the challenges? No challenges, no challenges. They, they, they. You know, the, the Australian public is very well travelled. You know, slightly less travelled now, but, <laughs> but they are well travelled. And I think that the, you know, the, the initial thoughts that went behind this was based on the beautiful little restaurants. You know, either, either the little restaurants um, or the workers' cafes of uh, regional France. And that you go in, this is what you eat, whether it's the workers' cafe at 22 euros or a little, you know, just sub-star restaurant that's, you know, 55 euros or whatever, is, you know, this is, this is what we're good at, this is what's fresh, this is what you eat. So for a long time I felt that Australians wouldn't want to do it in their own backyard but once I started doing it, they they seem pretty 
pretty keen on the idea. And in the, yeah, so eight years ago, that was a bit of an outlier thing. Whereas now we see restaurant after restaurant after restaurant, particularly regional restaurants, who are adopting this model because it, in the modern age, it makes such good financial sense. You're um, a real champion of local produce. Tell us a little about the connections that you've made with producers of the region. Uh, they're, they're priceless. They, they really are. We're, we're actually we're, we're running a series of classes as part of our 10th anniversary celebrations. And these, there's four classes and they're called Meet the Farmer. And so I've colluded with four of my main protein suppliers. So I have the beautiful Jodie Clark from Great Ocean Ducks. I've got Xavier Prime from Chooks at the Rook who does eggs and roosters. I've got Nat from Brooklyn's Free Range Farm who does British White cattle and Berkshire pigs. And I've got my mate Bruce, who's my neighbour, who's a – he runs a stud called Oberon Stud and he provides me with Suffolk lamb. So they're the, they're the, you know, they're the prime – suppliers of my proteins now they all you know except for um so xavier's sort of further down towards colac and um obviously jody's down at uh, port campbell uh, port, port, port yeah yeah down on the great ocean road um so they're a bit further afield but all of them practice extraordinary regenerative farming techniques and animal husbandry and this is something that I'm you know, becoming increasingly passionate about. You know, obviously, I dig up the earth constantly to grow fruit and vegetables, and we do it in a more and more careful way as the years go by. And these farmers all align with our ethics. And one of the things I'm so excited about these classes is, is I'm dragging them all in so that people actually – people people have, are often quite disconnected to how their food is grown – and the good and the bad, and it's not that we want to stand there and you know, on soapboxes and brandish our fists and say, no, 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 you can't eat this and you can't eat that, but so that people have an understanding of how the food chain works and how farming works and how some farmers are you know, really doing it differently to provide a future for, you know, our kids and our kids' kids so that we start to sort of roll the roll the wheel around into a positive again and sort of address some of the mistakes that have been made sort of pretty much post-Second World War in how we produce food. So those those relationships for me are incredibly important. They focus very much on the, you know, the, the regenerative and ethical um, guidelines that all of these producers follow and, you know, in being married to a vegan, it's important. But also, you know, I have, you know, I tend animals every day of my life. And I understand that you can't keep all the boys. And I understand that, you know, they do need to be, you know, sent off and we eat them and all of those things. But by going from the live, you know, like the live, the, the cows in the paddock to, you know, beef at the restaurant, is it's never lost on me that that's a life. And that's why I choose those suppliers so incredibly carefully. Well, you've also got your own farm, Babington Park. Tell us a bit about that and and the um, 
sort of uh, hurdles that you faced and the successes that you faced doing that? Oh, good old Babby P. She's six years <laughs> old now in our life. Wow. Um, when I talk about Babington Park at the moment, I often will say that if you ask me what's been harder, COVID or La Nina, I will automatically say La Nina now. La Nina was way harder than COVID. Yeah. And again, it's this beautiful relationship. When you actually grow things and you are, you know, your fruit and veggies are not just arriving at your back door in polystyrene boxes. When you're connected to the earth in a different way is you notice all of these things. So three years of La Nina have meant that, you know, it's been really tough growing conditions. And that, you know, on a broader scale, that actually that means that for for some farmers it means an absolute boom time and we know that with the grain um, the grain harvests and things from this year but for for smaller scale farmers or farmers that you know the whole eastern seaboard you know has been disrupted by extraordinary weather and it has meant that the supply of everything basic from lettuces to tomatoes to garlic to, you know, the brassica family, you know, all of those things have been disrupted in a major way over the last three years. And it just brings you back to your responsibility as an individual to do your best because otherwise there's not going to be you know, we'll all be eating things that are made in laboratories and that the people who eat fresh food are sort of going to be outliers in 30, 40, 50 years' time. That's a concerning thought. Um, tell us tell us what you're doing. What, what animals are you growing and what sort of vegetables do you have in the garden? We grow no animals for slaughter. So all of our animals are based on sort of rare breed stuff. So we've got little um, miniature white galloways uh, as the cattle and they are used for pasture improvement and uh, eating grass so I don't have to mow so much. Um, And we have a selection of smaller creatures. So we've got goats for their fleece. So we've got cashmere goats and we've got three little uh, rare breed miniature cheviot sheep Um, and we have geese and ducks and chickens. And why we keep them is that except for the cows, who would like to be stabled in winter, but they're not because they make too much mess, um, is we actually use all of that bedding, uh, which is primarily hay cut from our paddocks, um, to go into our compost. So we run a very circular circular thing where the grazing animals keep the grass down, they create soiled bedding, the bedding goes into the compost, the compost gets laid with all the green waste and that goes back onto the garden so that we don't have to dig and plough and release carbon. Um, So that's why we keep the animals and then in the vegetable garden, yeah, we grow all our needs for the restaurant. The only thing we don't grow is our citrus, but we're working on that with our polytunnel. And we don't I, don't, I don't grow celery. And I've got a lovely man who is a friend who breeds onions. His job is an onion breeder. And Ross leaves me bags of onions on the veranda. So I don't grow onions either because Ross, Ross breeds onions. Imagine that. Imagine that as a job. Yes. <laughs> so we grow we grow everything that we we use here except for onions and celery and citrus. As we're sort of leading up to the 10 year celebration for De Fermier, what are you most proud of? 
Survival's got to be pretty high up there. <laughs> um, to still be open and operating, I think that's uh, that is that is something for me personally to be very proud of. But that wouldn't happen without the extraordinary support I have from my my lovely wife Susan. But the people that have worked with me over that ten years, because a restaurant isn't this restaurant isn't just about the fact that I stand out there and cook lunch for everybody. It's it's the service and the quality of service that the wonderful front of house people that have been with me over the years and the dishwashers, um, you know, bring their personalities, their style, their skills to the place and they've all been different. And the people who have gardened with me, you know, so it is, you know, it is, I'm incredibly proud of attracting such wonderful people to come and spend either a short amount of time in my world or a long amount of time in my world. And I think they are, you know, they're just, they're amazing. And I'm incredibly proud of what they've done. How has the restaurant changed your life? Well... <laughs> get up every day and go to work but that's never changed um I think that I think sort of perhaps go back to sort of the COVID years and when we when we went through the COVID yeah so before we hit COVID the restaurant was functioning at its optimum level and it was really it was a very very happy business model that was working very nicely now obviously COVID COVID has um, thrown a spanner in that. But one of the things that came out of COVID was that we had all those density um, limitations. Remember those? And we had, you know, over the two years, we had things like we could do 10 people or we could do 15 people. But the general rule of thumb was that we could do 24 people for our square meterage when it was one for two or whatever it was. We were also closed for extended periods of time. So what happened over those two years was that I decided that we would just sit 24 people. That's what the future held for me. I didn't know how long the restrictions would be applied for. And then when, when we were doing nothing, um, I did a bit of renovation in the restaurant. You know, I spent money I wasn't earning, which is always a lovely restaurateur's trick. Um, and we did a bit of remodelling of the restaurant. So, in fact, when we came out of seating density requirements, we could still only fit 24. So, what what the restaurant has exhibited now for me and what it's done for me in my life is that I, in the 10 years that I've been here, I have been able, through sheer circumstances, not pre-thought... So it hasn't been planned or mapped out. But not only have I had the opportunity to buy the building, which is, you know, I have a mortgage, but it's a very different sense than being a tenant, signing a lease every three or five years. But I've sculpted I've, I've sculpted the restaurant so that it exists and it exists in um, parallel with my ageing person because... As a 56-year-old, I can't cook for as many as I could 10 years ago. 
I can't do those hours. I can't stand there for that long. I can't lift the same amount of weight. So I feel that there's an incredible privilege that I have of having this funny little restaurant in the middle of a little town in central Victoria um, that diminishes as my capacities diminish. And we have a joke here that we'll end up just doing Sunday lunch. <laughs> but, um, and they'll wheel me out at 75, you know. But um, it is, so for me, it's given me absolute security and the capacity to dance to the beat of my own drum. And what cook doesn't dream of that? that thing you know for some it's empire building and multiple venues for me I just want to turn up and cook the beautiful things from my garden and come out and say hello to all the customers and thank them for dining with us and go home at the end of a you know a reasonable daytime day and go and weed or mow or watch telly like a normal person you mentioned the Meet the Farmer masterclasses. What are some of the other celebrations that you have on um, that celebrate the decade? Mother's Day, Mother's Day, I've invited my kitchen mother to come. So I, and I've asked her to write a menu for me to cook. So the very lovely Mrs. Alexander and her family are coming to join us wow. on Mother's Day. Um, she's written a menu. She's changed it a couple of times. I think the last email was signed off with, I'll stop now. <laughs> Um, so that's that's incredibly special for me because Stephanie has been my my mentor, my friend, my guiding light. My you know, I can throw anything at her about the horrors of running a restaurant, and um, you know, she'll have she'll usually have some very straightforward sage advice. Um, so that's pretty exciting. Another one that is incredibly exciting on a personal level for me is. Um, we have a very lovely winemaker in our region called Michael Dillon and Dill Michael runs Bindi Wines and Michael and I have known each other for, you know, 30-odd years and both of us were very close to our fathers and my father died about a year before Michael's father died and he has done something much more constructive than just remember and have a chat to Dad every so often. He's actually planted a vineyard for his dad and he planted it after his dad died and he has made wine from the vines since 2017 but none of them have been released. So he is releasing five consecutive vintages of what will be known as Darshan, his Darshan Pinot. Um, and I get to cook. Uh, I get to cook a dinner for his mailing list and a lunch for mine, um, where we show not only the five Darshan wines, but some of his Chardonnays and some of his uh, some of his sparkling and some of his kooky kooky. Uh, I think he's got a kooky sweet wine that uh, I think is just for family and friends. But it's it's one of those celebratory things that I think as a as a in the modern age, it's not something that happens very often that someone releases five consecutive vintages. And Michael is the most beautiful storyteller. He is, uh, he has a way with, he writes beautifully, he speaks beautifully, he speaks quietly and eloquently, and he can spin a yarn. 
And I am just so thrilled that we're uh, doing that. So that's exciting. And I've also asked a couple of the girls that I've worked with over the years to come and cook with me on a couple of Monday lunches. So one one will be cooking Italian and the other will be cooking Greek because I made my Greek mate Angela cook uh, French food all these years. So it's sort of like my, uh, yeah, this is, it's their turn to shine. <laughs> Well, it's amazing that you're celebrating um, 10 years this May with all those events. Do you have, what have you got planned for the next 10 years? Well, um, 10 years. Now, 10 years takes me to, what does that take me to? 66. I'd like to still be cooking. I would, I think that uh, what we have here is something incredibly beautiful. Um, it's an old-fashioned style of dining that seems to be, you know, becoming more fashionable. You know, it, it's having a – this sort of dining is having a, a bit of time in the sun. You know, I know that it will probably go out of fashion, you know, again. Um, but, shared, you know, the French farmhouse style food that is shared and – not intricate, intricately plated, has a sense of generosity and warmth to it, is it's sort of, you know, my, my job is to make people feel loved when they come into the restaurant and I would like to keep doing that because, you know, I've got a garden there. I might as well keep using it. I've got a little shop here, you know, so why throw the, you know, I could reinvent it as something. But that'd take a lot of effort, wouldn't it? <laughs> well, I think a lot of people would be very pleased to hear that. And um, it's an absolute honour, as always, to have you on Deep in the Weeds. Congratulations on 10 years. And what, a, what an extraordinary achievement you guys have done. Look at the family of, of podcasts you've got that came out of such... I don't know, such a, such, a, such a wrinkle in the universe. And here you are with your, your it's, it's like a fleet of fast cars, isn't it? <laughs> You've got a fleet. We have a, a fleet of organic cars. So <laughs> congratulations because you have provided the most wonderful insight, not only into our lives, but the way that the whole industry works and across the platform that you've developed, you know, so many interested people, you know, people are now interested in the stories. It's not just turning up into a restaurant and being wowed. It's about the backstory. And you guys have just perfected the art of that. So congratulations to all of you. Well, it's thanks to amazing people like yourself with the willingness to share. And um, it's been quite a journey and look forward to catching up with you soon. I'll still be here in 10 years time. <laughs> <laughs> Poking around with my dirty leaks. <laughs> amazing. Thank you so much. This is the Deep in the Weeds podcast. I'm Anthony Huckstep. Stay tuned as we take a deep dive into the lives of the incredible people who ply their trade in the food and hospitality sector. Special thanks to executive producer Rob Locke for making this all happen. Follow us on Instagram at Deep in the Weeds Podcast or email us at podcast at deepintheweeds.com.au. Stay safe and be well.